What happened to music that meant something? Like the Who at the Kingdom or Kiss at the Coliseum. Where is the Misty Mountain Hop? Where is the is the smoke on the water? Where is the Iron Man of today? Welcome to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Jim DeRogatis, the pop music critic at the Chicago Sun-Times. And I'm Greg Cotter. I write about rock and roll for the Chicago Tribune. Today on the world's only rock and roll talk show, Jim and I are back as the rock doctors, and we're going to tackle our biggest challenge to date, couples counseling. Plus, we'll review the new albums from former Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell and Omaha, Nebraska emo rockers Cursive. You're listening to Sound Opinions, and now it's time for some music news. Because of my experiences in the music business for over 20 years, I have a particular sensitivity when it comes to artists' rights and who controls the distribution and therefore the worth of those rights. Like many of my peers, I come from a working-class background, beginning my musical journey playing in dingy bars and college lunchrooms. Being a performer requires countless hours of dedication to your craft. If the performance of a song has value to a particular terrestrial radio station in its airing, I believe it's only right to compensate those performers who created the work. Simply put, if a station plays a song, both the author and the performer should be paid. Greg, that, of course, was one Billy Corgan of the Smashing Pumpkins who put on a suit and tie and went over to Capitol Hill in D.C. last week to testify before a House committee hearing weighing in on what's being called the Performance Rights Act introduced to both houses of Congress as a kind of last gasp initiative of the Recording Industry Association of America, the major label lobbying group, they want to get basically double royalties for any song that's played on radio. For as long as radio has been playing popular music, royalties have been paid to the songwriter of tunes. They have not been paid to the people who played on the recording. Radio has coasted by with the reasoning that us playing your song is essentially a free advertisement for that song. People will go out and buy the music or maybe they'll go out to a concert. In recent years, however, lobbying groups have been forcing internet radio, satellite radio, webcasters to pay both the songwriting royalty and the performance royalty. And now the major labels with some artists supporting them, including U2 as well as Billy Corgan and the Smashing Pumpkins, saying – Pay us what you owe us, radio. (laughs) Radio's response, Greg, is that we're going to be in serious trouble if you make us pay this royalty in addition to the songwriting royalty. The NAB radio board chairman, Steve Newberry, testified before the same committee as Corgan, and he said that if the changes in the law pass, quote, your local radio stations will be forced to cut services or employees, may be forced to move from a music format to a talk format, or may be facing bankruptcy, which is serious trouble for an industry that's already threatened good old terrestrial radio. Well, artists are also being threatened, uh, Jim, in this current climate. I think they're looking for a new revenue stream. It's ironic that, you know, for decades, the industry was pouring hundreds of millions of dollars into the radio industry via the form of payolas, basically begging them, paying them <laughs> to play their records because they realized the promotional value. Right. Now that uh, radio is no longer the big player in breaking new music, a lot of that has transferred to our computers, our laptops, in, in terms of exposing people to new, new music. 
they no longer have that cachet. What they do have is $16 billion in annual advertising revenue. And the artists are looking at that pool of money and saying, why can't we get a piece of that? You're basically using our music as an advertisement for your station. We should get a piece of that change as well. Now, what's interesting to see is that there was no love within this House committee for the radio conglomerates. But I think there was a lot of empathy for the smaller radio stations that Mm. may go by the wayside if this bill is passed. So there was a lot of urgency within that committee to say to these two sides, you need to get together and figure this out. Otherwise, Congress is going to impose a deal on you and basically telling the radio industry, the result isn't going to be good for you unless you can come to the table with the artists and figure out a fair royalty rate for everyone that keeps the smaller radio stations in business and yet compensates the artists for having their songs played on the radio. So this is going to play out over the next few months, Jim. It'll be interesting to see how it ends up. Hi, my name is what? My name is My name is Hi, kids. Do you like Primus? Yeah, Want to yeah. see me stick nine inch nails to each one of my eyelids? Uh-huh. Want to copy me and do exactly like I did? That is a track from the Slim Shady LP, the debut album by Eminem in 1999. It was the centerpiece of a major lawsuit in federal court in Los Angeles the last couple of days. A lawsuit that potentially could have dramatically changed the way royalties are paid out in uh, the record industry. But a federal jury sided with the record industry. Basically, at, at the heart of the lawsuit was a contention by two of the producers of that record, Mark and Jeff Bass of Detroit, who claimed that they were entitled to 50% of the royalties on the digital downloads and the ringtone downloads from that particular record. Normally, in the record industry, a 12% royalty rate is paid out based on any kind of a song purchase. And the record industry has contended that even though there are no manufacturing or distribution costs associated with digital downloads, they still only need to pay the artists involved 12%. These two producers say, no, that's ridiculous. Uh, We're in a new era. The digital download era uh, makes these kind of costs irrelevant. The artists and the producers should be paid 50% of every ringtone and every digital download. Federal jury sided with the industry on this. So a potentially precedent-setting suit has been knocked down. Once again, the artists get screwed. (laughs) The record industry gets to keep a bigger piece of the pie. The timing couldn't have been better for the record industry. I mean, as we've reported for for months, Jim, the record industry is in huge trouble here. CD sales continue to tumble. It is looking at revenue from digital downloads as its savior. And if it had had to split that pie 50-50 with artists and producers, their chunk of the revenue would have been even less in future years. So now they're able to keep still close to 90% of every digital sale. It's not fair for artists, but it's good news for the record industry. Well, it really makes no sense. You know, the reason that the record companies kept such a big piece of the pie for vinyl and for CDs is that they had to manufacture these things and ship them all across the country. But with digital music files, you're not making anything and you're not shipping anything. You're listening to a little bit of music from the first album ever pressed as a compact disc way back in 1982. That's I Let the Music Speak from ABBA's Visitor album. We are here to celebrate and mourn 
the 30th anniversary of the date that the first demonstration compact disc was developed in March of 1979. Since that day, 30 years ago, 240 billion compact discs have been sold, 3.5 billion CD players. It is safe to say, Jim, that the advent of the compact disc era basically created the modern-day record industry. It made it the most profitable entertainment industry in the world. By 1999-2000, this was a $15 billion a year industry, primarily on the back of CD sales. Those uh, shiny discs that were selling for upwards of $15, double the price of a vinyl LP at the time, uh, basically outmoding the vinyl LP, outmoding the cassette, and turning the record industry into this wealthy enterprise. It also laid the seeds for its downfall. Uh, Digital technology eventually would lead to the demise of the compact disc and lead to the advent of digital downloading, which has essentially made the CD now extinct. Yeah, it's a complicated history of these shiny little plastic discs. You know, the other way, the flip side to describe what you just said, Greg, is to say that it allowed the recording industry for another two decades to continue to milk its consumers. Right. I'm not without nostalgia for these wonderful little coasters, okay? (laughs) I remember with great excitement the first CD I bought. Before that, everything was on the Techniques SLD2 direct drive turntable, okay? Mm -hmm. I already owned the Beatles revolver. I was very excited about it. But this new format that was supposed to sound amazing and this thing was going to last forever and the sound quality would never deteriorate, I made the investment, bought myself a CD player, went out and I bought Revolver by the Beatles on CD. And I have to say that with my cruddy, you know, it was a real kind of stereo made for a college dorm room. It was This was not a high-tech system. It sounded better. Mm-hmm. In particular, I was excited about buying the Beatles Revolver because for the first time it was the English track listing. The record had been uh, bastardized when it was put out in the U.S. A right. couple of the best songs cut out. And so here it was, the whole English original album as it was meant to be heard, with this great pristine sound that even sounded good on my cruddy speakers and cheap headphones. And, you know, in particular the way And Your Bird Can Sing exploded out of the speakers. I want to play that to say happy birthday to CDs. Let's take a listen.
that's And Your Bird Can Sing by the Beatles from the Revolver album. First CD I bought came in that long box, Greg. Right. I mentioned long boxes <laughs> the other day. We did to, to Jason and Robin, two of our younger producers here. And they had no idea what that was. Initially, you know, records were sold in the record stores. They were 12 inches tall, right? Yeah. And the, the record companies were concerned about uh, how these CD things would fit into the bins that existed. Mm-hmm. So they had these big cardboard boxes that were utterly useless, wrapped in plastic, and then the CD was inside, and that was wrapped in plastic. Yeah. It was it was a big controversy early in the CD era. Now, I have to say, I still have my scratched and beaten up copy of uh, Revolver on vinyl, and, and I got the CD too, right? Mm-hmm. But I've moved seven or eight times in the last 10 or 15 years. I am tired of carrying the 10,000 or 15,000 CDs I have. During that course, I've gotten rid of all the jewel boxes. They're in these little plastic sleeves now. Mm-hmm. And and I keep getting rid of CDs. You know, at some point you figure, I do not need 21 Aerosmith studio albums. I'm going to keep the best of, and the rest of it's on the net. We are moving to this world where everything is supposed to be in the cloud. You want some obscure Aerosmith track? It's in the cloud. You right. just download it, right? Right. I don't want to carry these things anymore, man. I will never part with the hardcore of 500 vinyl albums I've pared down to, but I I don't feel any sentiment whatsoever for CDs. I would be happy to get rid of them all. Well, I hear what you're saying to an extent. A lot of music, you know, it's much easier to access absolutely on your hard drive or your cell phone, and you, you want to hear a certain song at a certain time. But, you know, we do a lot of record label bashing at least major label bashing on this show, Jim. But I want to say a word in favor of the labels. I think at a certain point in their history, they were acting as curators over the back catalog that they had in their vaults. A lot of this stuff never would have come out had the CD not been born and had it not give them a reason to repackage this stuff and actually put it in some beautiful box sets that made you reassess artists like the Robert Johnson Complete Recordings box set out in Columbia or those early Elvis, the King of Rock and Roll series on RCA, which were beautifully annotated, gave you the complete look at what Elvis was like before he turned into a self-parody. I, I'm going to break your heart here. You know what I did with both of those boxes? Yeah. I mean, we both own them. Yeah. I have gotten rid of the jewel cases. I've gotten rid of the boxes. I have all four or six CDs in one little plastic case, yeah. and I've filed the book. Right, That's right. what I've done. I right. didn't need that cardboard, man. Well, the cardboard is unnecessary, but you still have the packaging, and I and I love the packaging on that stuff. I still prize some of those things. I, I still love, for example, the James Brown box at Star Time. I think that, to me, was an utter revelation. Brown's back catalog was in disarray. It was very difficult to find the original albums. It was very difficult to find the original singles. I, for one, had been chasing down this one two-part single that he released in 1967 called Get It Together, and finally, Star Time comes out in the early 90s. It's this beautiful box set of CDs, <laughs> and there it is. It is. They've got this two-part, nine-minute single on the box set. And why I cherish it so much, it's not only one of uh, Brown's greatest songs, but you also hear what it was like to be with James Brown in the studio, him basically orchestrating the band on the fly. I mean, James Brown basically recorded everything live. And here he is in the studio commanding the band. Okay, Maceo, give me some, you know. That's right, you just keep playing Maceo because the groove is there. You know what I mean? He's barking (laughs) out to the band. He's basically arranging the song on the fly, and you can hear all this happening. So it's a great single, great piece of music that was very difficult to find, housed under one roof of these uh, beautifully annotated box sets. I think uh, Star Time by James Brown is the very pinnacle of that era for me. And uh, here's a great song from it, Get It Together, by James Brown from 1967, where you can hear him arranging the band on the fly. It's the reason I appreciate compact discs. If you hear any noise, it's just me and the boys. So everybody be mellow. 
Somebody might drop their horn and things like that. So don't worry about that. I gotta say it three times. Can I get three fellows? Three times! Good daughter. Is it possible I can get four? If I can get four, I got to open the door and leave. I can get four. Give me four. Cause the groove is there. Now I'll tell you what I want you to do. Now when I say hit it, I want you to hit it. You yell me jabo, you yell me banana. But when I say quit it, I want you to quit it. You ready? Get It Together by the great James Brown, Mr. Cott's uh, favorite moment on shiny compact disc. Coming up on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media, the Rock Doctors are back in session. We'll help two listeners overcome their musical differences. And later on, we'll review the latest from former Soundgarden frontman Chris Cornell and Omaha indie rockers Cursive.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. I'm Greg Cott, and he's Jim DeRigatis, and uh, we are a full-service rock critic show here. We love to help our listeners in any way we can, and uh, occasionally we have to become the rock doctors in order to help our listeners get their musical needs fulfilled. This week we have a particular challenge in that we have a couple, Mag and Patrick, from Brooklyn, whose musical tastes do not align. So the rock doctors needed to talk to them about how to get some music in their lives that they can both appreciate. Mag and Patrick, welcome to the show. Thank Thank you. It's great to have you. This is our first couple, right, Jim? We've never had two patients uh, simultaneously, Dr. Cott. But I do feel compelled to tell you, Mag and Patrick, that we are not certified couples therapists. (laughs) (laughs) So we can't dive too deep into anything, uh, you know, that might be if your relationship is sick. That's not our specialty. But music, (laughs) music is. Mag and Patrick, let's start with Mag. Mag, describe the uh, the symptoms here of this medical musical issue that you have. Uh, well, in short, I'm not the biggest fan of my boyfriend's music. He really likes Dave Matthews and Green Day. I'm not as hot on them. <laughs> I sort of refuse to listen to them when he puts them on. You did say Dave Matthews, right? Yes, I did. What do they always shout on those medical shows? Stat, stat, get the paddles. It's like <laughs> that's almost like that's life support. <laughs> well, he um he's he's really good about listening to my music, but the thing is that when whenever we find something we both agree on, we'll just play it into the ground and then after a while, neither one of us wants to hear it anymore, so we end up sort of back at the drawing board. So I'm hoping you can help us. Well, first, let's get a little background. Um, how long have you been dating? Almost two years. Mm. and um, Well, we've been living together almost a year now, too. Which is sort of the catalyst for the, that when we were living apart, it wasn't as much of an issue, but now that we live together, we're clashing so much more. Yeah, before it was sort of like, if you're over at my apartment, you know, you're going to listen to my stuff. Yeah, and, you know, yeah. just kind of suck it up. Um, <laughs> yeah. But now we live in a very small place in Brooklyn, and there's just it's just impossible to play two things at once. And the record collections have merged. No, thanks to the beauty of the laptop computer. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. We sort of, I I like to make mixes actually, and you know, transfer them into his iPod to get him to <laughs> show him what what I'm into. But I, I have a playlist on my iPod that says Mag says listen up. Yeah. So, Mag, what will we hear on that playlist? Um, I really like classic rock. I skew more towards blues, country. Like I love the Beatles and Bob Dylan pretty much. I would be happy if everything was just Bob Dylan and the Beatles all the time. And I also like Wilco, Billy Bragg, Elliot Smith. I like the folk stuff. That's where I tend to go. All right. Patrick, is that an accurate read on, uh, on Mag's uh, prognosis there? Yeah, I would I would say it's pretty accurate. I mean, uh, you know, our our basic problem I think is that I don't just listen to Green Day and David Matthews band, but uh, you know, I'm obviously a big fan of both. But I, I'm just sort of a little bit lazy, I guess, and uh, I have trouble finding finding new music, and I just don't put the time into doing it. So I'm like, I'm happy with what I've got, yeah. and so I'll, I'll try to put on Dave, um, and she just kind of rolls her eyes and 
the headphones kind of go in and uh, <laughs> so I'm, I, I'm feeling a little you know like i'm like a bad kid in the corner you know patrick we are the rock doctors and we don't want to be judgmental but uh coming here and saying you like dave matthews is a bit like going to the physician and saying yeah i eat seven pounds of butter a day i smoke three packs of cigarettes and i mainline vodka <laughs> well, you know, the, Dr. Deer Goddess, I have it's to not say, good for my it. main problem with these symptoms is that I'm trying to grasp the common ground between Green Day and Dave Matthews. I mean, obviously, you have a great deal of passion for these bands, Patrick. That's fine. Why these two bands? What is it for you that makes you love these bands so much? Right. Um, they are two of, the, two of the first bands I think I kind of got hooked on. So they really sort of were guides for me in introducing me to music. And one of the things that I think drives Mag crazy a little bit about me sometimes is, I'll, you know, I'll kind of be like, oh, I don't really care what genre they're in. I just kind of, you know, if it sounds good, I like it. And, you know, she's always trying to classify what my tastes are. You know, it's really, it's hard for me to explain. I mean, I really love the sort of singer-songwriter style that Dave Matthews has. I've, I've written plays about a couple of his songs, actually. And I'll be back from Yes, I'll walk a hill time with you, old friend And we'll find that place that we had danced in so long ago And then with Green Day, I've really enjoyed following their progression with each album. I think they're uh, actually incredibly brave. Yeah. So, Patrick, it sounds like lyrics and ideas are very important with you. Um, I mean, like, even with Green Day, they progressed to become something much more than just a pop-punk band. Right, absolutely. My shadow's only one that walks beside me My shadow heart's the only thing that's beating Sometimes I wish someone up there will find me Now, we can tell from hearing you guys talk and from looking at your charts that you're both music fans. So, not getting along musically, did that have any effect on your relationship? Well, yeah, I mean, I have to say that the biggest thing that happens is that we just don't listen to music. And so, living where we live, it's, I feel personally like I'm disconnected from the community, that I want to know what's going on out there. I want us to agree so that we can go out and go to a bar, hear some live music, go to a club, find a band that we both are willing to spend money on to buy the ticket. And so I, I feel like it's really limiting us, making our relationship kind of dull, because there's this whole aspect of living in New York City that we're not taking advantage of because we, we can't agree. Right. I mean, when we do agree, it was, it's fantastic. You know, we, we went out to see Billy Bragg in Jersey and had a, had a great time. Hmm. But I think we need, a, we need a little bit more of that. Yeah, we got to fix this. There's urgency there. You're living in the, you know, the, the capital of culture for the whole world. You know, and, and not to be presumptive, but down the line, there's another obstacle that happens to people in your situation when, you know, the kid comes along and then you're listening to nothing, nothing but Justin Roberts, you know, <laughs> and you got like Teletubby songs in your head. We, no, we, we got no, to fix too this. Horrific. Yeah, no, we yeah. got to fix this ASAP. <laughs> so what do you think, Dr. Deurgatis? Are we ready to give a prescription? Yeah, I think this was a tough one for me, but I do think I have a prescription that both of our patients here will like. Of course, with the two of you, we are doubling our chances at failure, <laughs> but we're trying to succeed anyway. Hopefully. 
All right. Now, Mag, I uh, keyed off of your love of the Beatles and uh, your love for, uh, you know, bluesy classic rock like Exile on Main Street. I was thinking the early Beatles on speed in Hamburg uh, revving up that R&B almost to punk rock tempo drawing on the blues and the R&B. And the punk rock tempo thing is where I came in with your Green Day fixation there, Patrick. Uh not a lot of the melody you love, Mag, uh, necessarily in terms of singing along. It, it's very melodic, my prescription. And not necessarily the lyricism that you love, Patrick. But hey, you know, I'm hooked on this drug, so I'm going to recommend it to both of you. It's a band from Denton, Texas called The Marked Men. I discovered them for the first time last year at South by Southwest. They absolutely blew my mind. They had not put out a record since 2006. They just have a new one that came out called Ghosts. I mean, it's great, up-tempo, irresistibly energetic, melodic garage rock drawing on that blues uh, background, R&B thing. So I'm going to lay that on you guys, and you'll report back if it worked. Okay. Excellent. Greg, you took on the other medical problem, the Matthews end of things, sort of. Well, to an extent. You know, I feel a lot of pressure in this uh, prescription, Jim, because I feel like a relationship is hinging on this choice. You know, if we don't get something that works here, (laughs) I mean, who knows if Meg and Patrick are really going to make it, you know? Uh, So really, I mean, I I feel a lot of pressure here, and and I hope it works. I've given this a lot of thought. I'm looking for common ground here. One of the one of the artists that you both mentioned was was Billy Bragg, and I think there's sort of a singer songwriter, lyrical depth, melody, song oriented approach there that I think both of you can appreciate. And I looked at at and Mag's appreciation for classic rock. I looked at Patrick's passion for lyrics with some depth to them. And the band that I hit upon is a band out of uh, the Pacific Northwest, Blitzen Trapper, with their fourth album called Fur. That's F U R R. I think they've got the lyrical depth that Patrick craves. I think they've got the melodies and the classic rock influences that Mag craves. I think somewhere in that record is some common ground that you can both appreciate. It's not exactly like all the influences that you described, but I think as a record that both of you could put on and appreciate, I think this uh, this band has got it. I love the fact that the songwriting does have some depth to it. I think there is definitely a, a, a melodic sense that's rooted in 60s and 70s rock, yet it doesn't feel like a retro record to me at the same time. It's it's young guys singing about basically the disconnect between being urban dwellers, being modern 21st century people, and yet living on a planet that's dying. And I think there's a whole sense of lyrical depth here that uh, I think will appeal to both of you. So I'm going to recommend Blitz and Trapper. I hope it works. I hope the relationship lasts. <laughs> and uh, hopefully this will be the record that keeps you guys together. We hope so, too. <laughs> yes, I, I would definitely cross my fingers. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right. Well, you, you both of you take your medicine together and separately, and then we'll check back with you in a week or so and see how it fared, okay? Okay. Awesome. Thank you, guys. You're listening to Sound Opinions. I'm Greg Cott. He's Jim DeRigatis. And today we are not only critics, but rock doctors. We've been helping a young couple who live together in New York, but can't seem to get along when it comes to their music. That is right, Dr. Cott. Mag is a fan of classic rock like Bob Dylan and the Beatles, while her boyfriend Patrick is a big fan of both Dave Matthews and Green Day. Both of them would like some new music, especially bands they can listen to together. 
Last week, you and I prescribed two albums by the Marked Men and Blitzen Trapper, and now Meg and Patrick are back to report on how the medicine is working. Hey, guys, welcome back to Sound Opinions. Thank you. Thank you very much. So uh, you're still talking to each other. We can we can hear that. So obviously the prescriptions we gave you didn't completely ruin your relationship. <laughs> Not yet. But uh, give us a sense of uh, where you're at. Since I'm talking to you, why don't you give me your read on uh, how the uh, the Blitz and Trapper record worked for both of you in terms of uh, curing your musical ills. Um, I I loved Blitz and Trapper so much. It was it's absolutely my new favorite thing. Wow. Hey, all right. That's Dr. a good thing Cott to hear. Scores. That is so awesome. Yeah, I really liked um I liked everything. I really loved Fur, the title track. Yeah, when I was only 17 I could hear the angels whispering So I drove into the woods and wandered aimlessly about Until I heard my mother shouting through the fog It turned out to be the howling of a dog Or a wolf to be exact The sound sent shivers down my back But I was drawn into the pack And before long They allowed me to join in and sing their song So from the cliffs and higher still Yeah, we would gladly get our fill Howling endlessly and shrilly at the dawn And I lost the taste for judging right from wrong For my flesh had turned to fur Yeah, and my thoughts they surely were Turned to instinct and obedience to God So Patrick, what was your, uh, I mean, Meg, welling up with enthusiasm here What was your reaction to this record? I, I really liked them as well, actually. Um, before we even got uh, the music from you guys, I went on to uh, Pandora, and I, uh, I, I did a search for them just so I could hear a little bit of the album, even before we got the music, and I, I really, really liked the album a lot. Um, I was a really big fan of Lady on the Water. Mm-hmm. I loved it from the, from the moment I heard it. My lady on the water, place your thumb upon my tongue. You've a song no one has sung. On the water with your jacket blue and strange Change these rivers in my veins Into wine, learning, burning Driven deep into this maze All of my days I got that, that Dave Matthews band lyrical depth from these guys a lot. I uh, really like the sound. That's awesome. I'm, I'm glad to hear it. Hey, I'm just impressed by your enthusiasm that you went out. You began to self-medicate even before your <laughs> prescription was filled. The rock doctors don't frown upon this. In fact, you can mix all the, the prescriptions you want, and uh, you can even drive while listening. We don't yeah. care. This is definitely over-the-counter uh, medicine. It's not contraband. We recommend it to everybody. So, uh, fantastic. So, Mag and Patrick, loving Blitz and Trapper. Jim, you had another prescription, right? Yes, I looked at the Green Day end of Patrick's listening habits and recommended the Marked Men. Was I successful at all, guys? Uh, you were definitely successful with me. When I when I started listening to them, I really, really saw the Green Day connection immediately. On uh, Ghost, I, I have to say that I, I like Fix My Brain more than Ghost. Ghost reminded me a lot of, of Green Day's earlier stuff, like things that I heard on Kerplunk.
Well, I'm, I'm impressed. So Ghost is the new album that just came out. Fix, right. Fix My Brain came out in 2006. I, I would agree. Fix My Brain is a much better record. I'm, I'm really glad you went back to that one, Patrick. Yeah, yeah. I was, I was shocked, actually, because I, I said to Mag, I guarantee that Fix My Brain came out later. Uh, and I was wrong. When I, when I did the research on it, I found out it was actually an earlier album. I loved uh, Sully My Name. Backup singing was uh, really added a lot more on that, and I also love that the songs are so short. You can blow through the album in about half an hour, uh, yeah, which I yeah. thought was really cool. But I'm sensing a but coming from Mag. But um, <laughs> I, you know, to me, they all sounded all the songs sounded the same. I was really not a big fan. Like, I like some garage stuff, but this was just this is way outside the box for mm. me. So. Wait, well, what about that energy and the adrenaline? I mean, it's great, like, aerobic workout music. <laughs> you know, I feel like I would really dig this. I, I mean, and I have to agree that I like to fix my brain better, and I think I would really dig fix my brain, like, if we're getting ready to go out for the night or something like that. It's it's more kind of that kind of mood music. But overall, I would probably never throw this on if I were on my own hanging out. All right, all right. So you'd consider listening to it together. And that was the Rock Doctor's goal, to find some common ground here. But I want to ask you, Meg and Patrick, when you listen to this music, um, I mean, is music on in your house pretty much all the time, or are there specific times when you like to hear music, like when you just come back from work or when you wake up in the morning? Why do you put it on? Usually when we, we get back from work, we're hanging out together, like making dinner, that kind of area, that, that like decompressing from the day. Right. That's a big time for us. So it's critical that the soundtrack be appropriate for both of you and be motivating. Something like the Bliss and Trapper would be perfect for decompressing. You get home from work, you're getting the dinner together. Uh, well, maybe something like the Marked Men is perfect for before a night on the town, and you can both stand to be in the room at the same time with each other listening to this, <laughs> this music. Absolutely. <laughs> Well, that's good. I'm glad. You know, I felt like a relationship was hinging in the balance here, and I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm glad that some of these prescriptions worked for you. Yeah, us too. Thanks so much. Yeah, definitely. Well, thank you, Meg and Patrick, for coming on Sound Opinions and putting your musical relationship problems under the microscope. Go out and stay healthy. Thank no you. Problem. If you want to make your own appointment with the Rock Doctors, fill out our patient form at soundopinions.org. And to make a comment on the show, call our hotline, 888-859-1800. Jim and I are going to be back in a minute on Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media with our reviews of new albums by Chris Cornell and Cursive.
Welcome back to Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media. Some of you may recognize that voice. That is the former lead singer of the Seattle grunge metal band Soundgarden, Chris Cornell, who is now well into his solo career. Cornell uh, broke up with Soundgarden in 1997 after a series of stellar multi-platinum albums. And ever since then, he's been sort of adrift and working in various projects, some solo albums. He's also been working with the an, another supergroup of sorts, Audio Slave. Three quarters of Rage Against the Machine meets one part of Soundgarden in Chris Cornell, and they made three studio albums together in recent years. In between, Cornell was releasing a few solo records. Now he's out with his third disc. It's called Scream. The big news here is that he's collaborating with uh, somebody you might never have thought he would be collaborating with. That is the uh, R&B hip-hop producer Timbaland, better known for working in the past with people like Missy Elliott, uh, Justin Timberlake, Nelly Furtado. Now he's crossing over to the hard rock spectrum and working on a hybrid project with Chris Cornell. The groundwork for this was perhaps laid a few years ago when Cornell did a cover of a very famous R&B tune, Michael Jackson's Billie Jean, on his previous solo record. Now he's made an entire record in that vein. Jim and I are going to be back to review it, but let's play a track first. It's called Part of Me from Chris Cornell's new album called Scream on Sound Opinions. That is Part of Me by Chris Cornell from his third solo album, Scream. Greg, if there had ever been any evidence whatsoever throughout Chris Cornell's long career that the man had a sense of humor or the ability to laugh at himself, I would swear that this record was a parody. Mm. He has been morphing into Nigel St. Hubbins of Spinal Tap pretty much from the beginning of his career. <laughs> I got to say, Soundgarden has not aged for me. You know, his whole buff Gen X, I'm Ronnie James Dio for grunge. You know, boy, that hasn't aged well. Then he tried to be Jeff Buckley. And now this, this is insane. This is beyond bad. Buy it, burn it, trash it is our scale. This, this is something 10 steps below trash it. 
it's unfathomable to me how this record got made and released by a major record company, Interscope, with the amount of money spent on this. It's ridiculous. You have Justin Timberlake writing some of the songs, and you have uh, Ryan Tedder of One Republic, who we just were excoriating last week for his work with Kelly Clarkson. What is Cornell thinking? He has actually been comparing this in interviews to one of the great Queen albums, A Night at the Opera, or Pink Floyd's Dark Side of the Moon. Could this be some sort of postmodern prank? Cornell's never intentionally been funny. Timberland's phoning it in. Cornell is being sexist and insulting, you know, in a pointless way because I think that that's what he thinks you have to do in R&B or hip-hop. Yeah. And, uh, wow, this is beyond bad. Yeah, I think it's uh, so bad that it's actually probably worth hearing at least once just for the laughs. Um, it's preposterous, I think, is the only <laughs> yeah. word that comes to mind. You know what this reminds me of, Jim? You, met, you mentioned Spinal Tap and Nigel St. Hubbins. I'll, I'll use a more recent reference point. Remember when Garth Brooks decided to become alternative rocker Chris Gaines in 1999? You know, it was equally ridiculous. I mean, it, it was like, is he really serious about this? You're really <laughs> wondering about the mental stability of an individual that would make a move like that and create an alter ego so ridiculous. And here is Cornell doing this uh, hybrid hip-hop, R. Kelly, and there's also some lounge cooner stuff. i got to say, Tim Bland, one of my favorite producers, has really done a train wreck. First of all, there's no flexibility in that voice, so therefore he can't ride those grooves anymore. So now it's about Andrew Lloyd Webber's sludge. It's piling stuff on top of stuff. I guess that's where the Pink Floyd and Queen comparison came in. I don't know. I guess, but this is really, uh, this may be the worst album we've ever reviewed in Sound Opinions history. Title track from the new album by Cursive, Mama I'm Swollen. Cursive is uh, an indie rock group based in Omaha, although its leader, the uh, brilliant young lyricist Tim Kasher, is now living in Hollywood and doubling as a screenwriter. Greg, you and I were huge fans of Cursive's 2006 album, Happy Hollow, a brilliant and dense concept effort that looked at the topic of religion from the perspective of various small-town denizens in this this, uh, city that they made up. We thought that was the band's real high point to date, although most people in the emo scene, forgive me for using the word, but that's where they made their early reputation, will forever be holding the band up to a 2003 album called The Ugly Organ. What have they given us this time? We were out there in Omaha. We taped a session with them for Sound Opinions last spring where they played some of these songs in development. Caught them actually literally the night before they went into the studio. Now, Mama, I'm Swollen, album number six from Cursive is here. Let's play something from it and give our opinion on the record when we come back. This is From the Hips on Sound Opinions. I'm at my best when I'm at my worst. When it's not rehearsed I don't want to know The God of my words I don't want to have to Spell it out Don't want to mumble What I'm trying to say I want to scream it From my foaming mouth 
song from the hips from the Omaha indie band Cursive. New album called Mama, I'm Swollen. Jim, you're right. Tim Kasher, the 34-year-old uh, singer-songwriter of this band, one of the most uh, brilliant singer-songwriters of the last 10 or 15 years, even though he's not widely recognized, certainly not as famous as his fellow Nebraskan, Connor Oberst. Yeah. But I think uh, his work stands right up there w- with the best of that. I agree with you. I think that uh, Happy Hollow was the peak of this band's career, followed closely by The Ugly Organ, their 2003 record. On this one, I sense a a, a disquieting air here of unfinished business. The big issue here is he's talking about this whole idea of a young man grappling with the responsibilities of adulthood. I mean, he's 34. Here's the rest of my life in front of me. And how am I going to live it? Do I even want to be in this band anymore? They talked last spring mm-hmm. about this whole notion of the band constantly breaking up and coming back together again. And every time it's like, okay, what new have we got to say? There's a huge sense of mood swing in this album. Really quiet stuff, a really loud and abrasive stuff. In the middle, he's wrestling with the devil, all these inner demons. You know, there's an exorcism on this record where he's saying, <laughs> get out, get out, you devil. And at the end, I think the key lines are, he's wondering about this guy who spent the best years of my life waiting for the best years of my life. I, th- I think that, to me, is the key to this album. There's also a lot of melodrama here. Kasher can tend to over-emote, can tend to get a little purple with some of his lyrics. So as a result, I don't rank this with their best work. I'm going to give it a burn it on the buy it, burn it, trash it scale. It's certainly a fascinating listen, but uh, you know, Kasher has done better work in the past. I tell you, I think you needed another week with it because I was feeling like you were for the first week of listening to this record. And then uh, I I read an interview that Kasher had recently given where he said that his favorite book of all time was the novel Rabbit Run by John Updike. Mm -hmm. And then hearing the album again after that line, I started to understand what this is. You know, Generation Y, arguably the most uh, privileged generation in American history, is now starting to hit late 20s, early 30s, and wondering, boy, we've been comfortable our whole lives. Is this all there is? You absolutely pegged the best line on the album. I spent the best years of my life waiting on the best years of my life. And so I think this is kind of a saying, boy, we're all comfortable. We've all got our iPhones. We're all getting our hybrid SUVs now. But why am I tempted to have an affair? Why am I obsessed with sex? Why am I unhappy? 
happy? Why am I bored? Asking some big questions. And I still think that the music really fits the moods of those songs well. I have to say it's a buy it. You go with your burn it. But, you know, listen for another week. I bet you'll be with me. (laughs) What do we have on the show next week? Speaking of indie icons, Jim, cursive being one, we're going to go east next week to speak to another couple of indie icons on the occasion of Merge Records' 20th anniversary in North Carolina. We're going to speak to the owners of that label, the people who founded it way back in 1989 and how they keep it going, Mac McCon and Laura Balance. Greg, as always, this episode of Sound Opinions was produced by our ace team of Todd Bachman, Jason Saldana, and Robin Lind. And our executive producer, our fearless leader, is Tori Southside Malatia, a man who was gearing up to work with Timbaland, but then heard this Cornell record and said, no way. (laughs) Sound opinions, everyone's a critic. Now it's time to hear what you have to say. New messages. Hey guys, this is Meg April calling from Durham, North Carolina. I was just calling to thank you for acknowledging the greatness of D'Angelo on your Desert Island picks. I've had this album in my CD player for about six years now, not once taking it out. It was my designated make-out album, I have to say, through uh, many relationships. And uh, everyone I played it for had, had never heard it before, so I'm glad that you're finally giving it some recognition. Thanks. Hey guys, my name is Crash. I just listened to your uh, March 7th broadcast, and it, this is a comment responding to a comment at the end, that girl who talked about what NPR fans like and how they want to hear more Morrissey. I felt like I needed to defend myself. I'm uh, 32 years old. I live in Chicago. I uh, work in the music business. I uh, listen to public radio almost every day. I give money to public radio every month, and I hate Morrissey. So as far as I'm concerned, review anything else you want. Good work. Peace out. Hi guys, this is JJ from Chicago. Just got through digging your analysis of Van Morrison's Astral Weeks. And I wholeheartedly agree with, I believe it was Jim who suggested it is a song cycle. And the ending is meant to take you right back to the beginning. Just like the work of another great Irish poet, James Joyce, his novel Fagan's Wake. The last sentence leads right back to the first. Great show. If I ventured in the slipstream. Between the viaducts of your dream Where my world still runs crack And the dead send the back road stop Hey, it's Joey Garfield calling from the north side and I tuned into this Astral Week 
conversation, and I was hoping you guys were going to talk about Richard Davis. And I'm driving around like, got to bring up Richard Davis, man. He's he's the powerful backbone of this thing. He just brings the bottom in a great way. And I, I was I'm so happy you guys brought him up because I really think he's a integral part of this album, which I haven't listened to in several years because my friends are always like, Brown Eyed Girl, blah blah blah, Brown Eyed Girl, blah blah blah. And I get that. I don't have to hear Brown Eyed Girl ever, ever again. Uh, anyways, I really love this album. I'm very glad you guys are talking about it. Bye. I'm pushing out the door. Could you find me? Would you kiss on my eyes? Lay me down. Hey guys, this is Mickey calling from Duluth. Listening to your story about uh, Prince and how he's exclusively selling his albums at Target. Um, kind of bums me out. I'm not really a huge Prince fan, per se, but uh, I remember when I used to work at Cheapo Discs in uh, Minneapolis, Prince himself would come in and shop the used CD racks, like, just like the rest of us uh, music nerds, and I guess I always felt like he was one of us, in a way, but clearly he's, he's not. Uh, he's abandoned his ways of doing things differently and has gone the way of every other major artist, it seems. So uh, it's a bummer, but um, what can you do? Keep up the great work. No more messages. To give us your opinion on Sound Opinions, call our hotline, 1-888-859-1800. We'll be back next week with Sound Opinions from Chicago Public Radio and American Public Media.